If you're visiting for the first time, <clears throat> we just finished uh, at, at like 40 weeks in the book of Ephesians. And so for those of us who are around every week, let me give you a little snapshot of what the next six months look like so you can kind of anticipate that and make plans accordingly. I, I'm going to tell you about the series we're going to start today in just a minute. So let me tell you, post that first. We, we'll have Advent for two weeks in December with, with a very different kind of Christmas Eve service because of where it falls in our schedule. We're going to do Christmas Eve services both on Sunday the 23rd and Monday the, the 24th. Does that make sense? So if you're those kind of people who like to double dip at services, there's your shot. You get to do it twice. Um, or invite more people, more friends and family. I know that happens. But you'll see the same thing on Sunday morning the 23rd as you will in the evening and afternoon of the 24th. Uh, just be Christmas Eve service. So plan accordingly around that. We'll give you more details as we get closer. As soon as we hit the new year, we're going to start a series called Love Walked Among Us. 14 weeks, selected scriptures on the life and the love of Christ. And uh, be very specific on how he demonstrated that to us and what's ours because of faith. Um, and then Easter. And then after Easter, we start Jonah for, for a little while. So that's kind of the next uh, six months or so. Does that help? Okay. Then you can go out and run and buy your Jonah commentaries and no more than me. That's good. Um, let me talk about today and the next uh, six weeks. Uh, and let me tell you where it came from so you can kind of get the heartbeat behind it. <clears throat> I meet with Tyler and Paul on a regular basis, and uh, sometimes our conversations go from the pragmatic to, like, what do we need to do, and blah, 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 and we have conversations about what we feel, and in our conversations of what we feel inevitably turns to how we feel about you. Um, what kinds of conversations are you having? Uh, what are the types of prayers that you're being asked to pray with people? And inevitably, the conversation turned to this, and that was the overwhelming sense of pain and hurt and burdens that you folks are carrying. Diverse as there are people, as many as there are stories, that, that's kind of what we're hearing. So we thought, um, because we're kind of between series that Redemption is doing, that we could use this, this six weeks to be very pastoral with you, to actually speak to things that we sense or hear from you in your life and try to talk about those in real forms and terms and then try to see, I mean, beg God's gospel to get to that part of our heart that, that struggles with those with that trouble, all right? So that's where it came from. If you were here last week, I, I kind of, in our wrap-up Ephesians, told you my discovery going home and visiting my family and friends from 30 years ago is that I realized that everyone's dysfunctional, which made me conclude that I, therefore, must be um, as well. If that's a truth, and we kind of giggle at that, that's sort of true. Here's what is probably even more true, and that is the universal nature of trouble. Everybody knows trouble. Everybody has trouble or difficulties in their life. We've called this six, six weeks, this uh, title, This Is Us. And we thought what we could do is um, take a short time to be honest with ourselves. We thought that would be helpful. After all, the, the only you God can change is the real you. And here's what we don't do well. And I'm just going to be a judgmental kind of person right now. We don't do honesty about ourselves well. Because we have spent decades, we've spent a whole life posturing, pretending, and protecting and neglecting ourselves in order just to cover up. N not, not because we don't realize we have problems, we just don't know what to do with it and we don't want anybody else to know, so we just pretend and we cope. And so we kind of want to wrestle with the honesty and that's why we've called it real life. We want to just say these things, we're going to talk about things that don't normally get talked about in church. And hopefully in that honesty and looking at the gospel and how it approaches those things, we're going to be comforted even in the trouble that we carry, all right? So um, I just ask one request of you while we go through this. Would you commit to me 
for the next several weeks uh, to lay aside coping <laughs> however you cope, whether that's just pretending it doesn't exist or don't use the terms and don't tell anybody, whatever version of coping, just lay it aside while you're in here and let the Holy Spirit be honest with you and you be honest with him about where these things are real and, and where these things are exposed in you. So for the next three weeks, we're gonna talk about disappointment today, when the heavens are silent, when you pray and you feel like there's a lid in heaven and it doesn't go any farther than your ears. And then we're gonna talk about depression and anxiety, things that we hear that people are dealing with. And then the last three weeks, we're gonna be looking at the role that prayer, worship, and relationship play in the heart of a troubled mind. Does that make sense? So that's our, our attempt to try to talk about real specific things that we see and hear and feel and God's uh, response to that. Sound good? It doesn't matter. We're doing it anyway. If you, if you said, <laughs> sounds bad, um, I got nothing. Um, so let's talk about disappointment for a second, okay? Uh, Ephesians chapter 6 should be very fresh. Don't turn there. Uh, should be very fresh in your minds. No, ju no judgment there. Ephesians 6, Paul warned the church. He's wrapping up this wonderful instruction. He said, hey, just heads up. Put on the full armor of God because you know the schemes of the devil. He wants to ruin you, right? Remember that? That's a paraphrase. And we talked about those schemes. The devil's schemes come right at us, and some of them are fairly obvious. Temptations, accusations, lies, all that stuff that overwhelms us. He takes the world, lust the flesh, lust the eyes, the pride of life, and he says, get it, have it, want it. That's the, that's the tools that Satan uses in our life. But this, I don't think, is an exaggeration. Possibly the greatest attack that Satan has when he comes after the church is he comes after us with our disappointments. And here's something about disappointment. Unlike other trouble... We, we could do a survey, and, and I could say, tell me your trouble, tell me your trouble. And we might create a big, long list of different varieties of trouble. Uni universally, to all people, is disappointment. Everyone spends a season uh, being disappointment. And what happens to us when we experience disappointment is this thing called shrink. We shrink away from prayer. We shrink away from God's people. We shrink to manage. Every time I, my wife gets into this nutrition stuff, okay, and she hands me these, these magic pills. And these magic pills, beyond the pills, every time I open one up, there's this little thing in it. It's a silicon packet to try to keep the pills fresh and dry. In fact, you can't buy anything without silicon beads in it, right? Everything's being dried out. Disappointment is like a spiritual silicon pack. It dries out your prayer life and it dries out your relationships. It dries out faith. It just sucks the life out of everything. And you can tell when it's happening. People have that nobody's home look to them. They're, they're getting by. And that's the reality of it. And if you want to talk about an effective tool of Satan, um, because this affects everyone, it's probably one of his most used ones most effective ways he comes after the church. If I stopped just today and said, let's not do anything more than just let's take a, a survey and tell me, uh, church, everybody just write down over the last 10 years places and ways you've been disappointed. We'd have volumes of books on our disappointments. And in that book, I would imagine we would hear things like the broken heart of a parent whose child said they loved Christ and then just walked away. And they become their own worst enemy. And they reject everything they were raised to. Man, I taught you Christ. I took you to Sunday school. I prayed over your soul. I remember when. And then they just walk away from the whole thing. You would probably see things like children who experience the 
brutalness of a broken home. And then justify a whole bunch of sin because of the anger and the hurt that they're carrying. That's disappointing. It could be the loss of a loved one. It could be a marriage coming apart the seams. It could be people letting you down. It could be sickness. It could be pain. It could be a job that is just miserable. Does it provide? Yes, but I hate it. And I'm diminished and looked down on. No one knows what I can do and no one cares that I do it. It could be a failed friendship. It could be dreams unrealized. And maybe a sentence would describe that kind of disappointment. It would be like this. It just didn't work out like I thought it would. Because we come into things, whatever subject you pick, and we hope, we hope, we have high aspirations for all things. And then it doesn't turn out like I aspired it to or dreamed it would or like I hear it does, and then I'm disappointed. My heart's broken. And every person in this room has felt that. I told you uh, last week I had to go home to visit my family because my nephew uh, died. And uh, I got to spend a day with my dad. Um, and just to be transparent, um, I don't think he listens to my sermon, but dad, I love you if you're watching. Um, I couldn't help but notice the disappointment in his life. And I, let me try to explain. My dad's not angry and he's not bitter. It's not like he's shaking his fist at heaven. He still, he still believes. He still loves God. But things didn't turn out like he thought. I mean, a dairy farmer decided to be a pastor, 50 plus years preaching. He's not anything special like what I would say you would know him. He was just a faithful dude in a small church that nobody cared about, right? Um, but I remember a few years ago asking him, hey, Dad, I mean, you're almost done or you are done. What, what's, what's next? Are you going to retire? What, what do you want to do? What, what, what are you going to do? What do you look forward to? And he said things like this. And, and this might sound even, I don't know, interesting. It's kind of the way I want to end. But he um, said, I'd like to get a house, a little house. Because in ministry, he could never buy a house. And so he, he didn't. And so I'd like to have a house. I'd like to have a yard. Maybe I could buy a tractor. I mean, I guess that's what dairy farmers do when they're, when they're done. They go back to the beginning. So I'd like to have a tractor and maybe plant a garden find a good church, hang out with mom, and then live a stress-free life. Because my dad didn't do stress very well, okay? So I'm just picturing him saying, well, that's a snapshot of the perfect life for me. And I thought that was great and whatever. Well, 10 to 15 years, it hasn't gone at all like he dreamed. He had multiple heart attacks and then a quadruple bypass and then diagnosed with full-blown diabetes, and he is not good at managing that at all. He suffered a severe stroke that left him totally paralyzed on his dominant side. So he kind of lives in a chair or struggles to walk if he can walk. And that'd be one thing if mom was okay, but mom suffers a series of strokes and then has one cataclysmic one that put her in a hospital where she doesn't recognize anybody. That's their life. So he lives in a high-rise apartment, a high-rise assisted care facility of which he leaves every day, three times a day to feed my mom. That's his life. And it's not like he's grumpy. Like, if you look at Dad, he's fine, right? He's fine. But he's disappointed. I wanted to be somewhere else. I worked so hard for so long. I just wanted a garden. Not complex, right? Now, I hope you can relate to that. If you can't, brace yourself, because it's coming. You just need more time. What I want to do briefly this morning is remind you of a story. I'm going to take an Old Testament narrative, one that shows a series of disappointments for a season of life, and then try to draw maybe some helpful 
parallels or points to our life. It's the story of Joseph. And if you've been in church any length of time, if you sat in Sunday school, somewhere somebody stuck a flannel graph together, and you know as much as you need to know about the story of Joseph. But for those of you who didn't get that experience, let me just warm you up to the story. Um, Joseph's dad is Jacob. There is more written, more narrative written in the Old Testament of Jacob than any other character. Chapter 25 to chapter 50 of Genesis is that story of Jacob's life. Jacob had 13 children, 12 sons from four different women. That's how we know Jacob and his life. The 11th son of the 12 is a guy named Joseph. And Joseph was uh, pretty special. I want to show you, if you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37, we're just going to jump. We're going to like leapfrog over a couple of these events and, and particular stories of Joseph's life. And we're going to do it quickly, so you've got to really listen up. This is how the story of Joseph, as far as we're concerned, begins. Verse 2, chapter 37. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring, pastoring the flock with his brothers. Verse 3. Now Israel, now that's Jacob's name, Israel, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. Now some of that's very familiar to us, but just stop for a second. That's the narrative. Very young man, very well favored. If, if I could spend more time, I would. But, but Joseph, at least even in his lifetime, has, a, has kind of ascended to a place, a platform with his dad and his family. He is now sort of the lieutenant in the family. Dad says, go check on the boys. All of his older brothers, he's responsible to go narc on what's going on and tell them, hey, listen, they're not doing a good job. And you can see even chapter 37, verse 4, that he doesn't give good reports. So, so Joseph is like dad part two for the family, and he's, the, he's almost the youngest brother. So you already know there's got to be problems there, but it's good for Joseph. As far as he's concerned, I got the coat, I got the love, I got the platform, all good. That's where it starts, but now watch the disappointments begin. Verse 4, here's disappointment number 1. He is hated by his brothers. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully about him. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? He had, whatever he was, however he'd behave, or however his father talked about him, created this big, ginormous, like, wall between him and his family, and he was hated. And I'll bet you at this point he didn't even care. I got the coat. I got the love. Go ahead and hate well, it was number one disappointment leads to number two disappointment. His brothers do something about him. They sell him into slavery. Verse 37, this is how it started. I suppose you could say it got a little bit better because they saw him from afar, verse 18 of 37. And before he came near, they conspired against him to kill him. That's where this was going. That, that kid needs to come down a notch. How about all the way to death? Let's just take him out completely. Verse 21, but when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let's not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. Now, Reuben, in his mind, thought, well, I'll just restore him to his dad. That's what he says, that he might restore him out of their hand to his father. Verse 26, then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it? If we kill our brother and conceal his blood, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let, him not, let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. 
Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew uh, Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph off to Egypt as a slave. Okay, just imagine the transition of Joseph's life. I'm number one in my dad's life. I'm responsible for my family and my brothers, and now I'm a nobody, and they hate me so much, I'm gone. Disappointment number two, sold a slave. Disappointment number three is that he has now been sold into a into slavery into Egypt where the captain of Pharaoh's guard buys him and puts him in uh, charge over his house, and he spends then the next several years being harassed daily by Potiphar's wife. Look at it, verse uh, where are we at? Verse 1 of 39. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, the officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Skip down to verse 6. This is really important to the narrative. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. He was a stud. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me, i.e., let's have sex. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house, and he has put, me, uh, put everything that he has in, ch- in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except for you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph, day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. Pressure. Every day. So far, we don't see any grand failure from Joseph in his life, and yet it doesn't seem like things have been shaken out so well for him. And, and it's enough to be hated by your brothers to sell you into slavery, now to be sold into a place where every day you've got to fight the fight, like a fight you've never even dreamed of. And, and this woman wants to ruin Joseph, but he stands his ground. Disappointment number three is that he is harassed. Here's disappointment number four. He is falsely accused. Look at verse 11. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as, as he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. She then laid up the garment by her until her, his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, this Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and ran out of the house. My goodness. I didn't do anything. In fact, here's what I did. I fought the good fight, and I won. I never compromised. I honored God. I did it the right way. Mm-mm. Joseph, his disappointment number four was, no, you're guilty. You had intentions. You had plans. Here's disappointment number five. He gets falsely punished. Look at verse 19. Verse 19, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Bad, right? Not fair, right? Disappointing, to say the least. 17 years old, and now here we are. Um, And in this story in the prison, he is uh, succeeding again. 
I mean, Joseph has the magic touch, the Midas touch. Everything he does works out. And he's so good at what he does. The, the captain of the guard of the prison says, hey, Joseph, man, when you run things, things go well. And so he gives the control, the rule of the prison to Joseph the prisoner, and he considers nothing else about the job. It's like the boss just could sleep all day because he could trust Joseph, and that's how well it went. Pharaoh gets upset with the cupbearer and the baker of his kingdom, and they get sent to prison for some reason. We don't know why, but, but they're there. And Joseph meets them, and they have dreams, weird dreams. And Joseph interprets the dreams. To the cupbearer, the dream was, in essence, the conclusion of the dream was, well, God's going to restore you back into the position you had before. And Joseph tells him that story. And then he says this to the cupbearer as he's about to be exited out of this imprisonment. He says, only remember me, verse 14, when it's well with you, and please do me this kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and to get me out of this house. Verse 23, after it's all said and done, the cupbearer's in position, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot about him completely. <laughs> Man, I did good by you. I mean, I was a friend to you. I, we had this agreement. You let me down, blah, blah, blah. Another disappointment. You want another disappointment? It's only the first four words, words of, of verse 1 of chapter 41. After two whole years... Now, this is speculation, but I'll bet I'm right. Two whole years of unanswered prayer. Two whole years of sitting there as a falsely accused, falsely imprisoned, heated brother. You did nothing. My assumption is his prayers sounded a lot like David when David in Psalm 13 said, How long, O Lord, how long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be me exalted over me? That sounds like a very kind of prayer that, that Joseph might pray. You ever prayed that prayer? How many of you in this room have ever just said that? Maybe not in those words, but God, uncle, like when? It's, it's enough. How long? Now, I realize some people have more disappointment than others, but no person escapes it. So what do we do with it? If, if Joseph is simply a quick reminder of how the disappointments can line up and overwhelm us, what do we do with our disappointments? Let me just su suggest a very simple thing, which is our task whenever we preach, is to kind of fan faith and perspective in God's people. So let's just say grandly that we need faith and perspective. And let me just tell you this as well. Everyone has, has perspective with 2020 hindsight. If I told you my stories of disappointment, and I thought about doing it, but I thought, no, no, there's too many people that would recognize those stories. Um, I can look back at stories that disappointed me 20 years ago, and I can tell you the lessons and the things that God did, but I couldn't see it then. We need faith and perspective. And my question I have for us today, is there any possibility of us getting faith and perspective before we have to learn in hindsight? Do we need to go 20 years away, be able to look back and see what God did? Or can we get some perspective now? That's all I want to do with our time left is try to throw some thoughts out to you that you might consider, reflect on, ponder, and maybe, possibly, in our disappointments, maybe God could start revealing those things now and not just in our future, yeah? Is that cool? Let me give you some thoughts. 
Here's the first thing if you wanted to actually try to attack this issue. I want you to question your disappointment. Because if you do, many times you'll find an idol. Question your disappointments. When you experience a loss of any kind, can you tell where the pain's coming from? Because if you can, you're probably close to the picture of what is bigger than God. What's bigger than what God wants to do in your life? Is it some loss of identity? Like, like um, not getting what you think you need or what you think will bring joy or who you think you are? I believe part of Joseph's disappointment was that he became a nobody for a while. Like, listen, I had got the coat. I'm the cat's pajamas. My dad thinks I hung the moon. I'm in charge of my older brothers. I've got these dreams, and I boast about my dreams in front of my family. Well, guess what, Joseph? <laughs> you're nobody, and you're far away, and you're falsely accused, and you're imprisoned, and you're, you're there. You're marginalized. Do you think there's any possibility that God was doing a work about humility in Joseph's life? I do. I think so. I need you to listen very carefully to this, and I'm certain someone has told you this before, but it's a good reminder. Many times, even the good things that we have are idols. Our children can be idols. Our marriages can be idols. Our jobs, our ministries, our whatever can be idols. So here's what happens, and it happens so easily. We have our identities wrapped up in the wrong things. Is it any wonder that when we lose our identity that our experience is disappointment? Your identity isn't Christ alone. You're not sinners saved by grace. That's not your only banner. You're good employee with knowledge and ability. You're the good husband. You're the achiever. You're the accomplisher. You're the this. You're the that. You're also something more than just sinners saved by grace. I think the gospel forces us to have kind of one declaration. That's all I am. That's all I bring to the table is my struggle. So, what's the idol? Maybe you should take a look. I'll give you another suggestion. Reframe your thinking on what is good. We know this, and, and we've got bumper stickers with this verse. When Paul is instructing the church in Rome, he says, we know that to those who love God, all things, all things work together for the good, right? We know that. All things. All things include disappointments, don't they? So you got to change your perspective on what is good. There is a principle that we talk about a lot here. I got to share it with my brother in the line at the visitation for his son. I don't know what to say when somebody loses a son. I, I, I never do. But I wanted to have something at least stick out there that maybe he could assess later. And I said to him, my brother's name is Ralph. I said, Ralph, God doesn't waste suffering. He just doesn't. He wastes nothing. God isn't discovering our life and experiencing our losses when we do. God has got a grand plan, and he wastes nothing. Here's the truth. Every one of us in this room prefers plans and prepares for good. Can't help herself, and I don't judge you for that. I want it to go well. I want it to work out. I want it to succeed. I want it to be healthy. But nobody includes trouble in the roadmap to get there except for God. God says your limitations, your sin, your sickness, your failure, other people's failure, other people's burdens on you will be also the way that I do good in your life. 
We, we don't plan for the trouble. God does. And the good that God is doing in us is the good of refinement. I watch a horrendous amount of YouTube, just like how to fix it stuff, okay? And occasionally I'll be on these, these guys who are in a foundry forming different types of things. And foundries have furnaces, and they throw these ingots of metal in, and the furnace gets turned up. And before they ever pour anything from the molten metal, they take a scoop, and they, they, t they glean off the dross, the impurities off the metal. Disappointments. All those things that we hate and are sad about, it's kind of like that. They're the places where God could skim off the dross, the sin of our life. If, I'm, if I tell an own, like my own story, if I'm transparent for a second, there are times when I get done preaching, people come up and they'll tell me about their disappointments in me. I, I didn't, seriously, I mean, you might be surprised. You didn't say enough. You said too much. I mean, I get that all the time. And, uh, and, and I, see, <laughs> I see their disappointments in their face towards me. And what's really weird about this whole engagement is their disappointments become my disappointments because suddenly I'm either, I'm either bothered by them or I'm bothered with me. Either way, it doesn't turn out so good, okay? And yet I can't let it go. And this is part of how God works, at least with me. I can assume, I can even say, well, I'm right and you're wrong. Great, no big deal. But it grinds me. And I go home and it just spins and it just spins, and it spins, and it spins. And you know where God's taking it? He always does. Humility. And the greater good of that moment isn't me being right. The greater good is being like Christ, humble. That's the hardware. And I don't plan for it, and I'd prefer that you don't come up and tell me I stink. <laughs> but it's part of my life. So, there's a good that God is doing. Let me give you another thought to consider. Stop comparing your life to other people. I, I got to assume that Joseph sitting there in prison, maybe year one, year two, thought once in a while about how his brothers had it. Man, they're outside. I know where that pasture is. It's beautiful. There's a tree. There's a brook. They're probably having fresh goat for dinner. I don't know what they're doing. They've got it made. The last commandment of the 10 is thou shalt not covet. So let me ask you a question, and you be really honest. If you had no one to compare your life to, I mean no one, there wasn't a culture that you had to compare yourself to, there wasn't a friend or a family member that you had to compare yourself to, how much disappointment would you really truly realize? There was no comparisons. No, they have and I don't have, they've got and I don't have, that kind of thing. You have nothing to compare yourself to. Do you think there's a little bit of looking over the fence I think so. I think that's why the commandment is here. Do not covet, because we're covet beasts. Do you compare your spiritual life to other people? Do you want what you see? Do you think you deserve it? Have you ever used the word unfair to talk about your story? Those are challenges, and they have everything to do with wanting something that God didn't give you, okay? And let me just suggest to you that comparing your life to others is an absolute waste of time because God is forming you. And what I mean by that is the uniqueness of you. You don't even know you. He does. So when disappointment happens, do you think the sovereign God of the universe isn't doing a strategic move in your particular life and story? Did you want it to be like somebody else? You really want to live someone else's life? Well, that would mean you'd have to be an absolute clone 
of that person. God is working in all of us, individually. What do I need? What do you need? Well, our Father knows what we need. That's why comparing is such a waste of time. Maybe, maybe, maybe my dad, for all the things I feel about him, maybe what he's going through right now is an exact perfect move by God for his life. I believe that. Okay, let me give you another thing. Being disappointed doesn't have to be a demeanor. Some of us allow our disappointments to permanently shape the rest of our lives. We become bitter, we become distant, we become guarded and withdrawn. I've heard people talk about, as an example, I've heard people talk about a bad church experience in their past and therefore it shapes how they feel about church the rest of the time. Oh, uh, it, they didn't go well over it. 50th Baptist Church on Avenue, whatever. So I don't serve anymore, and I don't give anymore, and I don't put myself in that position. I don't work with the one another because I got burned somewhere before. I don't even have to tell you how stupid that is. You know. In fact, you wouldn't even tell anybody because it's so not biblical. Well, if we read on in Genesis, you will see Joseph doing well at the end. He's forgiving and he's not bitter. He's a different man. And so what I conclude is I understand I can't control when we are disappointed, but it seems to me based on the instruction of the scripture, I can control how I respond to when I'm disappointed. James says to the church, consider it pure joy when you encounter trials, trouble, disappointments of various kinds because you know that God is doing a work. He wants to grow you up, mature you, make you complete, not lacking anything. Joy, and you've heard me say this before, joy is the face of our Savior. And therefore, joy must be the face of his bride. Can't look different than the Savior. Can't look different than the bridegroom. We have to look like him. But some of us wear our circumstances more than we wear the face of the one who controls our circumstances. We look like someone sucked the red right off our sucker. We, we let everyone know miles away, I'm not happy. And I'm disappointed. I think there's a, there's a difference between the reality of disappointment and then not letting it control every aspect of your life. Okay? We are to remember the outcome of our salvation. Faith, joy, love, and peace. Here's another thing I want you to consider. And, and I can't overemphasize this one because I think if there was one thing that they said, preach it, I'd preach this one. S some of us in this room, when you consider your disappointments... It's you. You're the reason why your marriage is falling apart. You're the reason why you, when you lay awake at night and all the regrets start going through your mind, it's you. You've got the issues. You're the reason why your reputation stinks. You're the reason why you don't have any friendships. You're the reason why you're alone. Yeah, you got disappointments, but when you're done assessing the problem, you're left with you. Can I give you something, church? Believe the gospel. You are far more loved than you could possibly imagine when it comes to your sins and all your regrets, all the failures, all the foibles in your life. Jesus says what? Sin. As far as the east is from the west, you sang it this morning. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and there's clearly no separation for even people who struggle with disappointments like we do. If you don't believe the gospel, then you're going to be defeated by all of the things you're a part of. Believe the gospel. Believe the hope of, of transforming grace. 
I got one last thought. It could have probably been the first thought if we were using Joseph's story. Trust in the sovereignty of God. Like really believe he knows best and he knows what he's doing. At the end of the story in Genesis chapter 15, the father, Jacob, the patriarch, is gone. He's died. And what makes sense to me is that the brothers are freaking out at this point. Okay, Joseph, he's going to remember what we did. Dad is not here to guard this thing, so um, what if Joseph decides to take it out on us? This is how it reads, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave us a command before he died. So they lied to him. That's good. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of your servants of the God of your father. Now watch Joseph's response. Joseph wept when he spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, don't, don't fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So don't fear, I'll provide for you and your little ones. <laughs> what a great finish. You know what Joseph said? Yeah, you had some bad intentions. But look at what God did. He rescued the people of Israel. At that time, when that severe famine of seven years was happening in that world at that time, people, many thousands, probably millions of people, got taken care of by the work that God was doing in Joseph's life. Let me just suggest to you to think it another way. From time to time, God takes a, a moment with his people, and he drops a pebble in your life, and you consider it disappointment. But God's creating a ripple, and the ripple rolls, and it goes on to generations of people. I don't blame you for not having perspective for your grandkids or your great-grandkids or your church when you're gone. I, I don't blame you for not thinking that far in advance, but clearly that's what Joseph meant. God in his plan when I was 17 said, put me in the sifter for, for those 13 years because I'm going to do something with you. Some disappointment in your life might be the work that God is doing in your family in the future. I would suggest be okay with that. Some failure might be a lesson for you. Some sickness might be a testimony. Just might be. Because here's what we know. Satan um, and others might have bad intentions. But our God is good and holy. Amen? And he wastes nothing. And his ripple is a good one. So have a bigger perspective. Believe what he's doing, even if it is the suffering, even if it is the disappointments, that there is a picture that he's painting with your life and your story that is about his glory. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to suggest um, that if you're burdened and you're disappointed and you want someone to pray with, we'll have some pastors down front here that would do that with you. Let's pray. We dismissed. Lord God, I do thank you for the reminder of Joseph's life and how it, it kind of paints an analogy of what it's like to be let down and disappointed and clearly that's a common tale in the heart of men. But as believers, God, we can't escape the fact that you're doing a bigger work, a greater work of transformation in us and blessing other people. So God, give us perspective and faith today, we pray. Let us leave here and have the... Uh, the truth of your work and your gospel affect our demeanor, 
That's my prayer. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.